I think that most everyone here probably knows more about the Jehovah's Witnesses than I do. So I'll do the best I can to, to get through this. Um, there is basically the, the schedule that we're going to follow is, and it wasn't that I didn't have enough information or enough resources um, to look at, but the problem is I just ran out of time preparing the material. So I, I don't have this course exactly where I'd like it to be. Uh, but the main topics we're going to cover, well, t tonight on the first page we're going to cover premillennialism, the Watchtower Society, the nature of God, the nature of man. And in the nature of God, I know Pat is covering the deity of Christ, so we'll spend about five minutes on that topic just to know some of the peculiarities of what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach about the deity of Christ. But Pat will cover that in, in a lot more detail. Um, and then just a few miscellaneous uh peculiar doctrines. But kind of what I had in mind was to do an overview today, and I think today's class may spill over uh, and, and not be more than I can cover in an hour. And so uh, so we're going to cover it in just a little bit different order. I've got premillennialism as one of the first topics here, but I'm going to move that to the end because the next topic I'd like to cover tomorrow is the significance to Jehovah's Witnesses of the date 1914 and where that comes from. And I think that fits into their premillennial thinking. So we'll put premillennialism at the end of this lesson, even though it's early in your notes. I'll, I'll help you get through that. Um, and we'll put that at the end so that we can, you know, we can stop and find a good stopping point and then that material will be, it'll be a better transition, I think. Uh, so tonight we're for sure going to cover the Watchtower Society, uh, their teachings about the nature of God and the nature of man. And then just point out some of their miscellaneous, just odd, peculiar doctrines that they have that, that you'll need to be aware of uh, from time to time. Um, so really, I just want to give you a, a basic understanding of some of the false teachings um, that, that the Jehovah's Witnesses are, are really guilty of. And to understand that it's really headed by an organization that's man-made, that is headquartered in New York. And it's, um, that's, that's where their authority comes from. It's from that organization, the Watchtower Society. When, when I did the fans in Niagara Falls, when they were sitting in the church there, we saw the entire building with a big sign that said Watchtower. Yeah. That's their headquarters building. You can see it. Yeah. And, and <laughs> funny about that, and this just popped into my mind, but as I was researching some of this, the Internet has so many sites that are built by ex-Jehovah's Witnesses. There's tons of them. People who have just studied their way out of it. Now, I don't know of any of them who have studied their way out to a complete understanding of the truth, but they've studied their way out of that. Uh, some are, you know, some other denomination and others are just nothing at all and have nothing but bitterness towards religion. But one of the sites had something along the, the lines that kind of caught my eye. It was a, a picture of the building and, and basically it said only prison have watchtowers, and I thought that was interesting showing the attitude that, you know, an ex-Jehovah's Witness had toward the organization is that they do tend to keep their members prisoners, and that's, that's certainly true, and we'll see that um, in some things we'll point out in, in the lesson. Um, so hopefully when we're done, you'll be prepared when they come knocking on your door, because they're going to come knocking on your door, definitely. Um, the one thing, it, it, unless they've already been, one thing I've noticed is they get pretty much 100% coverage. I've moved seven times in the last 
um, I don't know, in the last five or six years. Um, you know, I guess time's getting away from it's probably more like eight or nine years. I've moved seven different times. And every new house, I've had one knock on my door every time. So we can learn from their zeal, for sure, um, in that. But want to just get a, a basic overview of, of their beliefs. And one of the things you'll, you'll notice when you're um, dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses is that, ah, there we go. So we want to get just a basic overview. This is the schedule we'll follow, an overview of the teachings that's tonight in green there. And then we'll look at the significance of 1914. Uh, I'll be quite honest. The next two bullets, those lessons aren't done. That doesn't mean that I haven't read about them and, and I don't have any thoughts already in mind, but they're not converted to electronic documents yet. But I, I, hopefully over the next couple of nights I can get that together. Um, but the 144,000 the great crowd, that's very critical to their thinking. So at worst I will, you know, uh, ad hoc some of that, just kind of ad lib it. Um, and their teachings about eternal life and hell I think are very uh, critical to understanding where Jehovah's Witness will be coming from. And then the theocratic war doctrine, I do have that one prepared already, and, and that's, I've got that at the end. I may move that a little earlier to buy myself some time. Uh, I apologize for not being more prepared. But that is basically, you may have never heard it called that, but the theocratic war doctrine or the theocratic war strategy is basically how they justify lying. They will lie to you. They will lie to anyone, and they justify it, and they believe the scriptures teach, or the watchtower teaches, that, that it is okay to lie in certain circumstances. They don't teach that lying is okay any old time, but they do believe that lying is, is acceptable in fighting God's war, the theocratic war. So you can lie to God's enemy, and if you're not a Jehovah's Witness, Guess what you are? You're God's enemy. So they can lie to you, and they will. And I've had personal experience with that, and I'll, I'll share that when we get into that. So that's certainly, we want to cover that, how they approach that. Um, so just get a, a basic overview of their beliefs this evening. Be aware that they are very zealous. You probably already know that. They believe they have the truth, and that you don't. And they believe your life depends on their talking to you. So that's not a lot unlike us. We believe that the people we're talking to, their life depends on, on you know, what the gospel has to share. Now, what we're sharing is totally different. They're sharing watchtower propaganda. You know, we're, we're trying to share God's word with them. Come on in, friend. We're glad to have you. And also, not unlike being a Christian, being a Jehovah's Witness requires a significant commitment. Very significant commitment. Uh, they, they require from the witnesses a significant commitment of time. They require changed relationships. Your relationships with those who are not Jehovah's Witnesses are totally different now. Uh, you're change, a changed lifestyle. Um, so that's, a lot of that's really not at all unlike being a Christian. Uh, um, the, the level of commitment and change that's required. And the one thing to note about anyone that knocks on your door and you agree to study with is that they uh, are going to be t- very moral people, uh, very sincere. Um, the rank and file, I think, as it gets higher up the organization, that sincerity gets lost. Very, and that becomes very, very apparent whenever they lie to you, like we talked about just a moment ago. Uh, but one thing about it is they're typically prepared. They indoctrinate 
those who are going to be doing the work, they indoctrinate them, they, they train them in, in persuasive speaking and, and in the doctrines of the watchtower. So they're, they're going to be, unless someone goes through some study like this, the typical Jehovah's Witnesses knock on the door is going to be more prepared than the subject that they're talking to. That's something that's, that's definitely, um, that they're going to try to lead and, and be much more prepared uh, than you are in general. So what we're going to cover, premillennialism, we're going to move that to the end, as I mentioned, but we're going to look at the Watchtower Society, the nature of God, the nature of man, their doctrines on that, um, and then some miscellaneous peculiar doctrines. So if you look at the, the handout that I gave you, the next topic there is premillennialism. If you'll go, I should have numbered these pages, but if you'll go, there, there's a, um, let's see, one... On the fifth page, at the very top of the page, it says the Watchtower Society. So that's where we're going to start. So according to Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower Society is the authoritative spokesman or spokes organization, if I can make a word up, for God. That's where the authority comes from. Um, and they're to be believed, even if doctrines change, even if the Watchtower says something it didn't say 20 years ago or two years ago. You believe what the Watchtower says now. That God has revealed some new truth to them. Even if it changes, believe the Watchtower. Um, and, you know, they, they, one of the things you'll hear, uh, probably not from the, the newer Jehovah's Witness converts, but you'll hear it, is this term called new life. Um, when, when the Watchtower makes a change to a doctrine, that's a new life. The Watchtower has received a new life, and that's why they, they changed that. Now, many Jehovah's Witnesses are completely unaware of all the changes that the Watchtower has made over the years. And the Watchtower practices theocratic war strategy, if you will, and they cover up the changes that they make. And they'll actually go back and revise those old magazines and those old documents says that it doesn't say what it did say then. They'll go back and they, they cover their tracks to, to, to hide some of their, their failures and, and failed prophecies, which we'll look at uh, when we cover the, the, um, um, we'll the premillennial aspect and their timeline and so forth. Um, so their main proof text is Matthew 24. So you might want to turn over there. And this is the main proof text for the existence of the Watchtower Society um, is the, the parable that's in Matthew chapter um, 24. Now, again, I, I would welcome any comments, questions that I'll do my best with. Uh, but I'm, I'm really, I'll be honest with you, I'm going to share with you just about everything I know. So. But I will, I will welcome questions and, and maybe, uh, I, know, I know that Probably everyone in here has given some study of this topic, so maybe if there are questions among all of us, we can, we can come to the answer. But in Matthew chapter 24, um, verses 45 through really 51, I think is important to read, but they're only going to look at 45 through 47. And uh, if you read that, just those verses, uh, who then is a faithful and wise servant, uh, whom his master made ruler over his house? hold to give him food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, uh, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. So the interpretation there is 
Okay, and we'll get into the more of the details of the timeline. But their teaching is that in 1914, Jesus had a silent or invisible parousia. And that's just the Greek word for, that's often translated coming. In the New King James, the American Standard, the New American Standard, the Old King James, it's coming. But in the New World Translation, and maybe one or two other translations, it's translated as present. And that's not a terrible translation of that word, for sure. But Jehovah's Witnesses are very, uh, in the New World Translation, it's always, when you see that word, it is present, no matter what the context is. That word will be translated present, where it has probably a, a broader meaning than that, um, though I'm no Greek scholar. But there was a silent or invisible parousia in uh, Perusia in 1914. Jesus came silently, and what he found was a, a small group, uh, of, a remnant of that 144,000, which we'll talk about. But he found that small group actually teaching the truth. And among that was Charles Cage Russell um, back in that time. So they found that uh, uh, they found that, that wise servant teaching the truth. And, and their interpretation there of verse 45, he made him ruler over his house to give them food. Their interpretation of the gift and food is, is the sharing of God's word to them. And that's what the, the Watchtower Society was doing at that time. Uh, and and there's more details of that, but the gist of it is that that silent coming broke out a war in heaven that you read about in Revelation 12. Then uh, that lasted three and a half years. He cleansed his temple on earth, which was the remnant of the 144,000, the watchtower. He found them clean in, um, in 1919. He found them to be clean. And so he, he ordained the watchtower as this uh, discreet and faithful servant, or faithful and discreet servant, what they'll refer to it as, as that remnant, the faithful and discreet servant. So that's their take on Matthew 24, verses 45 through 47. Rather ingenious, I think. That's not at all what the parable is talking about. Um, it's definitely not talking about uh, a watchtower society. Um, and so, you know, it's definitely not referring to being the only organization providing food at the proper time or any of that. Um, and, you know, I have a, a quote there on the, on the page, and I think this is fundamental to dealing with a Jehovah's Witness. If you can prove, if they can prove, that the Watchtower is God's organization, God's ordained organization, if they can prove that, and that, that's provable, then, then it doesn't matter. I, I, nothing else matters. If they can prove that that is God's organization, then they are to be obeyed, and they are correct. On the other hand, if it can be shown that the Watchtower is not God's organization, that they are not from God, then what the Watchtower teaches doesn't really matter. And, and you know, then you move on to, to revealing the truth that's in God's Word. So that's, a, I think, a, a fundamental thing uh, to show here. They, they use the Bible to prove, you know, to justify the existence of the Watchtower. So, um, uh, just, let's take a few moments and talk then about Matthew 24, um, uh, and what it does teach. Um, now, Matthew 24, you'll probably remember the early part of the chapter, uh, the question from the apostles when, when he, or the disciples when he said, you know, he, he, there's going to be one stone on the temple, 
uh, and then when will these things be, what will be the sign of the coming of the end of the age. I think there are two schools of thought among brethren on Matthew chapter 24. Some believe that the entire chapter is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in AD 70. Uh, others believe that there's a shift between uh, verses 35 and verse 36, and that the first 35 verses are talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in AD 70, and then 36, really through the end of chapter 25, is talking about the end of time. That's my position on it. I believe there is a, a shift there at verse 36. Probably people in this room don't agree with me, and that's fine. I think that's. Uh, I, I think those are both acceptable positions, and there's not a lot of difference between them. So when you look at that, I think that indeed verses 45 through 51 are talking about um, when Jesus does return and he finds a, a faithful servant. Uh, it's not talking about the Watchtower Society, but it is a it is a general admonition to servants. When Jesus comes in judgment, if the servants of God, that is all Christians, are doing as they should, there will be a reward. I believe that's the simple teaching of it. However, if you are not, as the rest of the verse uh, continues, verse 48, if that evil servant says in his heart, my master's delaying and coming, if we are not faithful to God and turn away from him and do not keep our minds on spiritual things, then you know, there's judgment will be cut off. I think that's the, the gist of it. Now, someone who holds that chapter 25 is the shift between talking about 80, 70, I would have, I don't know how they would explain it, maybe in a, a very similar way. Would you have any thought on that? How they explain it? Certainly is. Yes. Yeah. I think that they just say that it's an, it's an illustration that Jesus is using. Well, a faithful servant is one who is doing the Lord's will. Mm-hmm. And his preparation is he's doing it the Lord's will. How can they explain that to the same Same thing. Um, and one thing to be aware of, commentators are going to typically restrict this servant to be ministers or evangelists or elders. Most, and they have a denominational concept of the organization of the church. There's no reason to restrict that at all. It's a servant of God. And if you're faithful to God, when judgment comes, there will be a reward. I think that's the simple teaching of it. And the watchtower spin on it is... is requires a good bit of ingenuity, I think, to say the least. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I, I, there's no, I, I mean, this, this is obvious, but there's no other organization that holds this position, the Watchtower position on, on Matthew 24. No other organization holds that position. Um, Right. And, 
and, and particularly they'll emphasize, I'm glad you brought that up, but they'll emphasize verse 47. Assuredly, I say you to make him ruler over all his goods. And that's where the watchtower gets their authority. Because they were found faithful, God has given them all authority over all his goods. That's, that's what they're able to look over uh, on earth. Yeah. So, one thing to be aware of, um, if you've studied with a Jehovah's Witness, chances are you've gone round and round in circles and gotten nowhere. And that's because they're reading, this is the fundamental point, I think this would be one of the first places to start, is, is the watchtower power authoritative or not? I mean, are, is the Bible authoritative or is the watchtower authoritative? And that's where you have to start. And their reasoning, I, I, I've got a little kind of flow chart there in, in the uh, in the diagram, and I think uh, it's on the slide as well next. Yeah, my computer is very slow and it is thinking about going to the next slide. There it goes. So you can see the circular reasoning. So you start here. God chose the watchtower in 1990. That's what they'll tell you. That's, that's something that they accept as true. So you then ask the question, well, how do you know that God chose the watchtower in 1990? Well, only they were teaching the truth then. Well, what about changes to doctrines that have happened since then? You know, that, because they have changed, and, and you know that that's indisputable that certain things have changed uh, on what they thought. What about changes since then? Well, see those changes that that's a new life. Well, could that be true of other religious organizations that have been around since 1919? Could they not have received a new life as well? Well, no, because the, 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 God chose the watchtower in 1919. You see that circular reasoning. Now, that's not true of others because they weren't chosen in 1919. God chose the watchtower society in 1919. So it's kind of like the watchtower is, is all authoritative. Well, why? Because God chose them. And, and so why do you believe them? They have the truth. Why do they have the truth? Because God chose them. And you, you know it's that circular reasoning. Yes, Dan? So the watchtower society... In the existence before anything? Yes, it was. It was. It was in existence. Um, it, it may have been called Zion's Watchtower at that time. Uh, it really originated with a fellow named Charles Hayes Russell, who's not too distinct from the Adventists that, that Pat may have told you some about. And their roots are in Millerism. Uh, and so William Miller, uh, you know, a, a faith. Really, I say it's cautious, but he, you know, he certainly predicted certain end time events. So I think that um, I believe Charles Case Russell uh, died in 1916 or so, something like that. But um, the organization was definitely around, and Charles Case Russell uh, started the organization, and then uh, a fellow named. Uh, Joseph Rutherford, Judge Rutherford, was the, the next president after the of the Watchtower Society. So yes, it was around, probably beginning in the 1870s or so, and and, and in fact, it, it had been maybe even the 1860s because it had been they they had been around long enough to predict that the end of the world would be in in 1874. So they 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 certainly been around that long, uh, and then that didn't happen, and so. And originally they predicted that 1914 would be the end of the world. But then when that had happened, they had to change it. And because World War One actually happened at that time, there's now this new significance. It wasn't the end of the world, but it was significant. And since that time, they've really emphasized that day. 
It's a very good question. So yes, it did exist before 1919, but they were chosen in 1919 after the style of the, the uh, war in heaven and cleansing of heaven and then the cleansing of his temple on earth, the, that remnant. Mm-hmm. Let me make the point. Uh, I was in a, uh, in a meeting earlier this year. I visited with Vernon Peter. Vernon is really, really well qualified. I'm meeting with Joe Swift's doctor. He has a uh, large collection of books. And I don't know if he has it in his possession or not, but he, uh, a relative of his has it, or he has an original copy. Acceptable terminology to them at all. So the deity of Jesus, there, 
Assumption is that Jesus is not deity, but rather he is created. Um, Colossians 1.15, the firstborn of creation, is what they would use as a proof text uh, for that. And again, we know that's not at all what that passage is teaching. Another particular little twist on this idea uh, that would be different from from many others who, because who, there are a number of groups uh, who deny the deity of Christ, and that's a, a one of their doctrines. But one thing that would be maybe peculiar to Jehovah's Witnesses is the teaching that that Michael, the archangel, was is Jesus. That's one and the same. And their main two proof texts for that, or two ideas for that, is the meaning of the name Michael. They say is like God, so Jesus is is like God, Jesus is Michael, therefore. And also, um, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, and I'll have to turn over there to, to uh, be reminded of exactly what that, uh, how they use that. But Daniel 12 and verse 1, and, and I remember reading that and thinking, now how do they get from, from point A to point B from this verse? Uh, but I, I think the gist of it is that the Bible mentions someone named Michael, and... Uh, Michael means like God, and therefore Jesus is Michael. It, it, it's at least similar to that, and, and maybe, again, one of you guys would have more uh, input on that, than I, or some useful input. But Daniel 12, 1, at that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince, who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even at that time. And at that time the people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. So I... That's their, the only one I can come up with as a proof text for that, and that's their linking of Michael to, to Jesus. So, I don't know. I don't know if someone has some useful comment on that, because I'm sure someone could say something that would help seeing their minds a little better than, than I could. One thing, um, I have a trusty New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures with me, and one of the things that they do um, is they change the word worship to obeisance anytime Jesus is the object. Okay? Now, they don't do that consistently. Like I said with parousia, they just consistently translate that word presence all the time, no matter what the context. But with this word worship, uh, uh, again, I'll try my best to pronounce that, not be a real Greek scholar, but the kingdom interlinear is really incriminating. If you've not heard of the kingdom inter- interlinear, it is basically um, you know a, a, the Greek text with the English word, the exact English word, and then the New World translation along with it. And you'll see that you'll see this word proskuneo, and and you'll see times that it's translated worship, and times that it's translated obeisance, or to give him obeisance, and that, that is. Um, you know, the only thing that makes up their mind as to whether they do it is the object. So it's interesting that when this word, the object of this word, is, is this verb is God, then it's always worship, even in the New World Translation. When the object of this verb is an idol, it's always translated worship. When the object is a demon, or, you know, it's almost always except in Jesus. There's a couple of times where they'll render that word obeisance regarding an angel, another angel. But usually, when the object is an angel, they'll still translate it worship. Uh, but once or twice, they, you know, they, they don't do that for angels. They, they make it obeisance or worship. 
But always with Jesus is always obeisance, which is not the same as worship. Obeisance is not a word I use every day, but it's simply a, a gesture of homage, right? That's what obeisance means, uh, a, a gesture of deference. You know, you're, you're greater than me. And they would concede that Jesus is greater than men, certainly, and, and always was. However, he is not deity, uh, according to their theology and their doctrine. So, and even the devil is always the English word worship. So that's an interesting fact about that. Any anything you think I should add, Pat, knowing what you're going to cover uh, on this? Okay. Are you going to deal with the uh, what's called articulate theos or inarticulate theos? Well, I think it's bad. It's not that God just couldn't do it. I have to wait, you know. 
it was because of dealing with other people in the equation. So the angels definitely are used in, in bringing the world up past. But I'm not absolutely nothing there. And so the one I was thinking about a while ago, Uh, from Christ. 
And I think that's the contrast being made there. The, the action or the execution of the baptism didn't change between John and Jesus. Did the execution of baptism change? It was immersion in water in John's day and after Jesus came. Likewise, uh, um, you know, the, the person who was being baptized didn't change. What did John baptize? Penitent, uh, a penitent person, someone who had repented. The same is true of the baptism that Jesus brought. I think the, the, the emphasis there is contrasting, uh, you know, the, the power and, and significance uh, of the baptism. So it's not at all comparing, it's really contrasting the two baptisms and not changing the, you know, and not really comparing the, you know, the execution of the baptism at all. Um, another famous proof text, Acts chapter 2, let's turn over there and look at, at how they're going to, to, to try and twist this. Um, and one of the things, a couple of things I think are important in, in dealing with some of these topics if, if you get this far, uh, and that is, um, you need to, their proof texts don't teach what they say they teach. So you definitely need to deal with the text they show you, uh, for sure. But the other thing is, so many of their doctrines are so clearly, um, contradicted in other parts of scripture. So first of all, don't let them just get away with showing the proof text. The text doesn't teach what they say it does. But also, show them some things that are just, you know, just, and, and you may even see it hit them in the face, that how clear the Bible is on a certain topic. Uh, but Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, um, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And you say, now how, this is, would be their, their argument, now how could a person fill 120 people at the same time? How could a person do that? Well, I wouldn't give them that the Holy Spirit filled 120 people. I would say it was restricted to the apostles in this context. Um, particularly verse 7, are not all these who speak Galilean. But also, that they're going to turn from there over to, to verse 33 and say, um, uh, that's not the one I was looking for. Oh, yes, it is. Uh, having received from Father, the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see. A person can't fill 120 people, and a person can't be poured out. That would be their argument. So the Holy Spirit can't be a person. Well, is that true? Can a person be poured out? I'm remembering a couple of, uh, of uh, examples of what Paul wrote, Philippians 2, verse 17, poured out like a drink offering. And the interesting thing is the New World Translation, not all translations translate that verse, poured out, right? But the New World Translation does. So you can, that's one of those where you can take them. Now, in your Bible, I'd like you to read in your Bible, Philippians 2, 17, and 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul says, I'm poured out. So, using your reading, Paul was not a person. It doesn't hold, does it? It doesn't hold. Well, let me show you Paul is on the figure of Yes.
read this verse and draw any other conclusion other than the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is a person and is God. I think that's spot on. In the, uh, I'm not familiar with a lot of young things where you're showing off the person. Is that tell you truth to it that you're watching the... I would have to look at that. I would have to look at that. Um, you can do it later. Yeah. Why don't I, why don't I jot down uh, in, in these notes on, on the one that I have to... to because they are not above doing that <laughs> at all. Uh, that's the whole point of the translation. So, yes, definitely. I'll check both places. I'm just jotting down the note right now to check the New World Translation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but you have your own things to do this week, so I'll do that. Yes, Dan. Yeah, yeah. You cannot understand scripture without the watchtower. That the answer to that would more be that you're not understanding it, but you drew that conclusion because you read the Bible, not because you read the watchtower. And so your conclusion is wrong. That would be the, the that would be the position. And, and in fact, their own literature. When you look at their practice, their practice is to read thousands of pages of the Watchtower, a few pages of the Bible. That's their, that's, that's, that happens weekly for them. Exactly, exactly. Yes, exactly. Yes, Brandon. I think there's uh, one of the writings that 
So if the body dies, the spirit can't live anymore. The soul is different from the spirit. The soul is equal to the body plus the spirit. That's what the soul is. Um, and the soul does not live after the body dies because one of the components of the soul is now gone, right? If the soul is the body plus the spirit and the body's dead, then the soul is no longer. Hell, they say, is simply the grave. And they base that mainly on, you know, what the word Hades means, meaning unseen in the way the King James typically translates Hades to hell, whereas newer translations probably or give you a better idea of what the text is actually saying than the King James does on those topics. But they, they say, they take that and pretty much blanket that and say, well, the hell is just the grave. Uh, and eternal non-existence is the result of being cast into hell. Gehenna is that Greek word for, for hell. And that's uh, non-existence, eternal non-existence. That's what eternal destruction means, that there's no... There's no unpleasantness after life. There's just unconsciousness. Um, and again, some proof text. And one of the things, as I was reading on this topic, oftentimes I would come across a reference to Ecclesiastes. And it just, it, it, it's an example of missing the point, <laughs> completely missing the point of an entire book. Using Ecclesiastes to teach that, well, there's nothing after this life. You know, for, that's just, that is not at all the intent of the book of, of Ecclesiastes. Not, it's like the classic case of looking at the trees and not the forest at all. Um, so Ecclesiastes is one of the proof texts there. Let's look at those for sure. Um, and I think this will probably be, we'll cover, we'll finish up the, the nature of man and then look at some, some of the just miscellaneous peculiar doctrines. Um, and that, that'll go fairly quickly. Uh, and then, and then I'll, I'll leave it with you because uh, I know you guys are tired. Uh, so if you look at uh, Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4, again, that's a, a, a proof text there um, for that. Ecclesiastes 9, I'm not necessarily going to look at that because they're, they're totally missing the point. The point the author is making is, you know, really, if under the sun is all there is, then yes, it's futile. But that's not the point that, you know, that he's making is that, that there's nothing to it. There's nothing beyond the grave. Um, Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man, in whom there is no health. His spirit departs, he returns to his earth, and that very day his plans perish. So that's a proof that for there's nothing beyond the grave. And that's not, you know, that's not at all the teaching in this passage. The idea is, it's, you know, if you think of, um, you know, well, as, you know, if you think of, you know, someone who's an important leader in, in the world, or, or who plays an important role in the world, in earthly things, when they die, the things they plan to do go to the grave with them. And that's the point being made here. Their, their ideas, those are, those are dead. They can't be carried on on this earth. That's the point being made. The point is not, you know, well, he's dead, he's gone, and he has no consciousness. No, it's that on earth we have no benefit from the things that, that he took to the grave with him. That's at least my understanding of, of what, what the psalmist is pointing out there. Um, and again, 
uh, Ezekiel 18:4, the soul that sinneth it shall die. You know that that is see the soul dies, and that's again not you know not not the idea there. I, you know I would argue that that soul in that passage isn't necessarily what you know what their what their definition of soul is as well. And a passage the the story in First Samuel is um, rather than read that, I'll just recount that as best I can. But if you'll remember what's going on there, Saul, and if I get details wrong, correct me, um, but you'll remember that Saul has, has turned away from God. Samuel's already dead. Saul has put out all of the, of the, you know, all the witches and all the, the spirits, and he's put them out, and so there's, you know, there, there's none, but Saul doesn't have Samuel, and, and, uh, you know, he, he's about to be attacked, and he's, he's afraid. So he goes and finds the witch at Endor. And she, you know, she's like, she's afraid because of what's all done with the witches. And, and uh, she asks him to bring back uh, Samuel. And, you know, she, she goes to, to bring Samuel back from the dead. And, and you get the idea from reading the text there that she's even a little surprised to see Samuel coming. But the point there is that as for Jehovah's Witnesses, they read that. What they'll see is Samuel's dead. Samuel's dead. But Samuel appeared there. Samuel appeared and Samuel went and spoke to Saul and rebuked Saul. Why didn't you go to the Lord? But the Lord wouldn't answer me, Saul said. But, you know, and he goes on to, to have a dialogue there with Saul. But clearly there, Samuel did not cease to exist when his body died. That is the point that it just is so obvious from reading that story. Now again, the uh, story in Acts, this Luke 16 is the rich man and Lazarus, right? And then uh, Acts chapter 9 is the story of, of Tabitha or Dorcas. And just the language there of, uh, you know, they, they were showing uh, Peter some quilts that she made, and her body was there in the room. And they say, these are some quilts she made while she was with us. But her body was right there in the room. Dorcas was somewhere else. And that's the point we made. But her body was there in the room. Dorcas didn't cease to exist. You know, they, they understood that she was somewhere else. Uh, and not right there with them. So that's the, the... I think if you have them read those passages, the, the point will sink in. And there's, there's so many uh, uh, passages to turn to on that on that topic that, that if the Bible teaches any one thing, it is that there will be consciousness beyond the grave. So this is a miscellaneous peculiar doctrine. They never celebrate birthdays. They never celebrate holidays of any kind. The only exception I was ever able to find is they might allow you to, to celebrate a wedding anniversary. And that would be about it. But Memorial Day, Veterans Day, Labor Day, any national holiday, any birthday, primary proof text is uh, Herod was celebrating his birthday uh, when he had John the Baptist get headed and had Herodias dance uh, or Simone, yes, thank you. And then likewise the Pharaoh uh, when he uh, he was celebrating a birthday when he uh, beheaded oh man, my brain the baker, yeah, he beheaded the baker and that was, you know, at a birthday celebration. No blood transfusions. Um, the, the, no birthdays, yeah. Because those were evil men. 
pagan celebrating birthdays, therefore we shouldn't celebrate birthdays. Mm -hmm. That is that is the idea. Uh, and that's their their main you know you know, it's, it's an and it's, the, it's not the celebrating of the birthday that the Bible convenes in both of those passages. That, no, it's those men were evil, wicked men, and the birthday celebration didn't incite them to do what they did. They would have, you know, they would have done that anyway. Their minds were already spent uh, along those lines. Some other celebration, you know, would have called John the Baptist to be beheaded. You know, that, you know, the birthday is kind of a, a side issue there, not a main thing. No blood transfusions on the prohibitions from from eating blood is where they get that. Uh, it brings up an interesting point about organ transplants. No, yes, no, yes. It's kind of been the watchtower's position on that organ transplants over the years. No, I'm not sure whether they're at no or yes right now, but it's been no, yes, no, yes on organ transplants and blood transfusions. They will go to absolute extremes on blood transfusions, and that's one thing to be aware of. They will go to the point of kidnapping a baby from a hospital to prevent a blood transfusion. Um, and, you know, that, this probably has caused a number of Jehovah's Witnesses to quit being Jehovah's Witnesses. When you have a small child who needs a blood transfusion to live, and your manipulative religious leaders are saying, no, you cannot do that, um, you know, I would have a child who is dead right now without a blood transfusion, and I, so this one really hits home with me. If you know, if not for a blood transfusion, I would only have one instead of two children. And that, that you know, to have someone tell me you can't save that helpless four-week-old child's life is sinister and evil to me. You have the ability to save that life, and I'm not going to let you do it. And that's. I'm sorry, I'll, I'll move on to the next one. That one is emotional for me. But it's a misapplication of the prohibition of, of, uh, of eating blood in, in Acts 15 as well as uh, in the law. Um, this one is peculiar, but Jesus died on a torture stake, not a, and it did not have a cross beam, so it was just an upright pole that he died on. Um, primary proof text, uh, Galatians 3. The mention of, uh, yeah, you know, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. Um, so that Jesus was crucified on a tree. In the New World Translation, anytime you see the word cross, they'll change it to torture stake rather than cross is what they'll change that, that word to. My point. Sure. Recently, I shipped a box of Jehovah's Witness books at the years. To a preacher in the White House, Georgia, because I just don't have time now to become an expert in those witness stuff, so I just shipped them all off, all the stuff out of them off. One of them was an old one that had a picture in it. This was an approved J.W. publication. That picture of the cross. In other words, it was back before they left that position. Charles K. Russell, his headstone. That's the irony, I guess you would say. Yeah. Um, Their suggestion is that the cross is a pagan symbol and introduced by pagans, and Jesus did not die on the cross, and they abhor crosses. And, and you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not in favor of wearing crosses or displaying, you know, that, I, I think that borders on, you know, borders on uh, 
a graven image at the least. Um, but so I don't disagree with that that sentiment. But I, I'm not going to take that and go and, and change what the Bible says and, and change cross the torture state. Pat, you had something? Well, I said it one time, and uh, I can't get the call off. I got to admit, I said, what difference does it make whether it's a cross or just a public house? And in fact, what he probably was, it really doesn't make any difference. This is something that you use to get people's attention. Like somebody said, the only thing they will be started on the target. Well, the Bible says it's the same, everybody says it's a cross, and they say they're all about the other thing. Okay. Okay. I don't think there's anything important. Yeah. Well, this is like what we're discussing. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I I found that peculiar as well. Yeah. Yeah. Salvation is based on works uh, as well is is another of their uh, peculiar teachings, and it, they'll give lip service to salvation by faith, but they don't believe that at, at all. You're you're obligated to do the work if you don't do the the door to door work and. If you're not an unpaid salesman for the Washington Tower, that's, that's my word. They would never use those words, but that's in effect what they are. Um, then, you know, you won't, you won't survive Armageddon. It's not you won't get to heaven. We'll cover that later, but you won't survive Armageddon. Uh, no civic activity, so you can't be a police officer, you can't, you know, do any, any of voting, those kinds of things would be, uh, because the, the governments are uh, of Satan. Um, you can vote any election. No way. Well, what are the uh, The government is, God uses the government to, to punish evildoers. They'll submit to the laws of government as long as they don't uh, interfere with, with man's law. But their belief is that the, the governments now are, uh, Jesus is ruling the parousia in 1914. Jesus has his kingdom. The other kingdoms are usurping authority from the kingdom of Jesus, where he's ruling on his heavenly kingdom. So I'm not exactly sure how they can deal with Romans 13 on that, but the, 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 you know, they, they would certainly say we, you know, we submit to the authority, and you know, we're not you know, seditious, we're not an insurrection movement or anything like that, but we, you know, we respectfully decline to, to do the those civic things. Mm-hmm. You may not know the answer, but uh, would they say it's wrong for a person to be a teacher who works with another for like three hours for a national contract? Would that be wrong? I'm not sure. I, I, that's a good question. I, I don't know what that position would be. I, I really don't know. Well, the college education is discouraged. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't have to worry about the job you have. <laughs> <laughs> or for me. Uh, but, you know, if you have a college education when you convert, that's okay. But they just strongly discourage their children from getting them. Uh, because that's time that you could spend in the work. And, you know, colleges have, you know, the ability to destroy your faith. Yeah. So the, those are the two uh, main main reasons for that.
get through on the idea of you stop saying and start doing what was not said. And then I've questioned them before, and I've found them very popular on that. So I think it'd be profitable in a discussion to possibly bring that up and ask them, what, what do you understand about forgiveness and atonement? And, and, you know, get them to express themselves. And I've found them very popular on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to have the same way. We started this first one day saying, what do you do to be saved? And that question never is not over. We don't have to answer that question. Right. Right. They want to talk about the Indian tribe, saving the dead, right. the dead, right. those things. But they don't even talk about what they're going to be saved. They're not a single Yeah. 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 And, yeah. But who asked them to ask them about that? Yes, they do. But they're not, they're not like that. There's a lot of forgiveness and repentance. Yes. Yeah. Like, if you do a later role, you've got Yeah. Yeah, after you answer 80 questions, they yeah. answer so questions. Uh, public. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know Yeah, I don't know exactly how that works either, but I do know they're, they're required to, to give correct answers to about 80 questions publicly oh, before okay. they can be baptized. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I had two uh, seats in my room one day in my living room, and I said, now I want to ask you about baptism. I want to know, do you think you have to be baptized so that your sins will be forgiven? I really tried to make it as simple as I could, you know, to make it very direct. And so I asked to, and simultaneously, one eye went, and the other one went.
they want to be part of the spirit of the new world. But uh, context establishes that spirit is a being, and that's why in most places when it's translated be, it's done on the basis of context, not on the basis of the gender. But, uh, you know, in a lot of languages, the gender does not indicate whether it's personal or not. Yeah. Uh, Jesus sometimes refers to a new gender.